This is Dr. David White, and this is CRIM 305, and this is week one. Textbooks in criminal justice ethics commonly overlook the basic need to examine the self. In classic American style, we are comfortable talking about ethical concepts in an abstract sense with only the assumption that the student will internalize those abstractions in a self-reflective way. In taking this approach, many people overlook the so what question, and they fail to consider some of the basic ethical considerations um, that make criminal justice professionals professional. This approach also fails to capture two very ancient Greek themes from philosophy. First is know thyself, and the second is the care of the self. In the first few weeks here, we will take a more direct approach and we will look at the importance of two classical themes, especially for criminal justice. So this week's objectives include understanding our moral obligation as criminal justice agents to be physically fit for duty, uh, understanding the moral obligation of criminal justice professionals to look the part, to look like a professional. Understanding the moral obligation criminal justice professionals have to guard our mental health and to help those around us. Understanding the moral obligation to be a lifelong learner, again an aspect of the care of the self. Evaluating how we individually meet these ethical obligations and considering how criminal justice organizations can make officers more resilient by improving physical, mental, and emotional care for their staff. Cops and Donuts, not only a great donut shop here in Michigan, it is such a well-known stereotype that most anyone who sees a uniformed cop walk into the donut shop will chuckle. Uh, but, but fitness is critically important in law enforcement and society demonstrates their expectation that cops and corrections officers be physically fit. To work in criminal justice, uh, it can be physically demanding and stressful. Making this environment even more difficult is the fact that most of the work is sedentary. Uh, after hours of sitting around, uh, corrections officers, cops, uh, may find themselves in life-or-death struggles. Being able to moderate between these two extremes is itself physically demanding. Physical fitness tests are a regular part of the application process and almost a universal requirement in most training academies. This reality helps demonstrate both the general social expectation for officers to be physically fit and the specific belief within the profession that fitness is a required part of the job. A June 1994 Associated Press article uh, is a little more direct. The article opens with the line, the few, the proud, the flabby. This is a play on the U.S. Marine Corps slogan, the few, the proud, the Marines. The article discusses the then newly appointed, now famous, NYPD Commissioner William Bratton's disgust with the lagging fitness standards for the nation's largest police department. He's quoted as saying, imagine John Q. Public seeing that 300 pounder and saying to himself, how in the hell can that person help me? 
A more recent article in the New York Post demonstrates that this is still a concern for the NYPD, and it's easy to claim that obesity among law enforcement officers is an issue across the country. While the perfect body seems to be an illusory, socially constructed ideal, it is not controversial to claim that obesity is associated with a variety of various health complications, heart disease, diabetes, and other issues that shorten life and our lifespan. Society generally uh, frowns upon obesity as an issue of poor self-care. Throughout the ages, those who protect and defend a population, mainly warriors, or are and were expected to be physically strong and fit. This translates into a modern context for criminal justice professionals. What ethical responsibility do cops and corrections officers have to themselves, their coworkers, to citizens and clients, and ultimately to their families to be healthy and physically fit? While there's no national standard on fitness for law enforcement, most states require some type of fitness testing, including Michigan. Uh, the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards, commonly uh, known simply as MCOLs, sets the standards for law enforcement certification in Michigan. To get into the FSU Law Enforcement Academy, you're required to pass the MCOLs fitness test. Like, uh, uh, likewise, the Michigan Department of Corrections, MDOC, requires a fitness test for entrance into their Correctional Officer Academy. A little on the history of fitness tests. While society expresses this general need for officers to be physically fit, entry-level fitness standards for police officers have been heavily debated and they have evolved over time. No one seems quite sure what the best standards for fitness are. A 1972 International Association of Chiefs of Police survey showed that 54% of departments required a physical fitness test for new hires. By 1990, that number had increased to 80% of municipal departments and 84% of state agencies. Today, roughly 88% of all state and local police academies require some type of physical fitness testing and about 13% of police recruits fail their academy experience because they cannot pass the physical fitness test. If you're here at Ferris, uh, investing so much of your time, energy, effort in an education with the goal of getting a job in policing or corrections, I have to ask you, what are you currently doing to ensure that you're physically fit? Do you regularly work out? If you say that you really don't work out or you haven't thought about it, now is the time to get up and get moving. Although fitness tests were originally developed in the mid 20th century to quote, thwart politicians from hiring unsavory and unqualified persons, uh, according to Gaines and colleagues, they have been criticized uh, for being somewhat arbitrary and discriminating against female applicants uh, specifically. Cordner and Cordner, for example, 2011, reported that 73% of police chiefs said the biggest obstacle and challenge they faced in hiring more female officers dealt with the difficulty females had in passing the physical fitness test. In order to avoid disproportionality in hiring, many places have 
gendered tests that require different standards for men and women. This is true in Michigan. In a uh, 2001 Michigan case, um, upheld these procedures as non-discriminatory. And while this is true, uh, it will certainly be interesting to see how society's efforts to reduce gender norms challenges or changes these standards in the future. Military standards have recently moved towards a gender-neutral fitness testing. Um, there are a couple of counts provided in the module, one for the Air Force and the other for the Army. Despite legal challenges, entry-level fitness tests persist, and survey research shows that current officers overwhelmingly believe that they are a necessary part of that hiring process. Part of why they have been upheld over time is the ability to show that they are a bona fide occupational qualification, commonly known simply as a BFOQ. That is, they are job-specific um, tasks. In other words, the courts have ruled that fitness is a bona fide or general or real qualification that is necessary to perform the essential tasks of the job. In addition to entrance exams, another debate swirls on over whether agencies should remain uh, or should maintain rather a regular annual fitness requirement. Uh, this argument is related to the entry level requirements where critics claim that if fitness is a real bona fide occupational qualification, why do most agencies not have annual physical fitness requirements? Some departments do in fact maintain fit annual physical fitness testing for employees either as a mandatory requirement or on a voluntary incentive basis. However, they are not as common as entry tests. Implementing an annual test in agencies is challenging for administrators and uh, as many tenured officers may not be able to pass the basic standards. Uh, Bissett and colleagues in 2012 showed that while most current officers in their study believe fitness was, an important, uh, was important for entry requirements, most did not favor regular testing for incumbent officers and only about 27% or rather 27% readily admitted that they could not pass the test. That's of the incumbent officers. While this summary uh, sort of only skims the surface of this issue, it's important to explore some of the history insofar as it helps demonstrate two facts. First, it helps us uh, help show the social relevance and expectation of police and corrections officers to be physically fit. Society expects you to be fit. Second, it shows us that while physical fitness requirements are institutionalized, standards are still being debated. This adds to the nature of this as an ethical issue, which has real consequences for the level of service provided, as well as for who gets the opportunity to serve. One important distinction for this class is between ethical issues and ethical dilemmas. Ethical issues are defined as difficult social or policy questions that include controversy over the right thing to do. That's the definition given by Pollock in our textbook. By contrast, ethical dilemmas involve an individual's decision between two or more alternatives where the right course of action is not clear or because the right course of action carries some negative consequences. So that's an important distinction. 
This is, uh, again, an important distinction to remember in this class as we will be alternating between discussing ethical issues related to the criminal justice system and ethical dilemmas which relate to your individual decision making. As an example related to the current topic, the debate concerning whether or not fitness testing should be gender neutral, that's an ethical issue. It is an ethical issue because it represents a policy decision that must be debated by the group. Alternatively, whether or not you individually, you commit to maintaining your personal fitness while working in an agency that does not have an annual fitness test requirement. That sets up an ethical dilemma because you are not required by policy to be fit. You are free to decide whether you commit to being fit or not. Uh, you have an ethical decision to make. This is an ethical dilemma because you're free to choose between two alternatives. Remain fit or uh, get lazy and get flabby. What are you doing again right now to ensure that you are physically ready to meet the demands of this profession? In the module, I provide you some video examples of the MCOL standards so you know exactly what they are and a video from the Michigan Department of Corrections as well as a hyperlink for the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center commonly referred to as FLETC uh, that discusses federal fitness standards. Regardless of the formal physical fitness requirements, you will make a personal commitment, hopefully, to stay physically fit over the course of your career. Evidence shows that the benefits of physically fit officers surpasses their job aptitude and includes better job performance, more commitment to the job, less time off due to injury and illness, greater job satisfaction, and less stress, which improves psychological well-being. As we'll uh, uh, see when we address the mental health issues, uh, re uh, regular exercise helps control the physiological roller coaster that can occur when you are dealing with a high stress job. High levels of job stress and the sedentary nature uh, of most of the work can increase the risk of heart disease. Officers who die from heart attack uh, linked to a stressful event while on duty qualify for line of duty death. And uh, the, there's a link provided in the module to the National Memorial Report, and you can look under job-related illness and see that fact. Many agencies have or are considering implementing wellness programs. Some departments pay for your gym membership, give incentive for an annual medical physical. Some even allow you on-duty time to exercise. Wellness programs have become a regular or popular uh, thing because medical costs continue to soar and many municipal governments are self-insured. This means that if they can save money on insurance costs, they save the taxpayer money. Consider this, an average open heart surgery, the surgery alone not counting any additional uh, hospital expenses can cost you know, $50,000. If an agency has 100 employees and pays $15 a month for their gym membership, uh, comes out to about $18,000 a year. And if it saves one open heart surgery among the 100 employees basically every three years, it has paid for itself. That sounds like good public policy.
In addition to paying for gym memberships, some employees or employers rather fully cover and provide additional incentives towards uh, medical insurance premiums for employees who get their annual medical physical. Again, early detection and treatment of many illnesses such as hypertension, that's high blood pressure, helps save lives and reduce long-term cost, uh, medical costs. So in summary here, uh, four basic questions that you must consider when thinking about your moral obligation to be physically fit. What are you currently doing to meet the challenges of the profession starting with passing MCOLs or MDOC standards if they apply to your career goals? Are you working out? Are you making responsible eating decisions? If you have not taken assertive steps to meet this obligation, then now is the time. Weight Watchers is not just for your mom. They have a very nice app that uh, allows you to track your daily food choices, your weight, and there's a supportive online community on their platform for encouragement. There are many options out there in today's world, including one that is free and offered by the government uh, called Choose My Plate. The link is provided in the module. Get a gym membership and find a workout partner that helps encourage you to get moving. Second question, are you prepared to commit to a physically fit lifestyle that allows you to keep up with the demands of the job over time? I hope so. Three, if you are lazy and do not maintain basic physical fitness and as a result of your laziness, you are required to use more force on someone than, uh, than you otherwise would need. Are you ethically okay with that? I hope not. If you are lazy and do not maintain basic physical fitness, and as a result of your laziness, you are injured on the job, reducing your ability to work, or otherwise negatively affecting the quality of life not only for yourself, but for your family. Are you ethically okay with that? Again, I hope not. And so that is why it is important for us to start thinking about physical fitness as a issue of moral responsibility, as a, a in the classic sense, uh, a, the sense of care of the self, a very ancient thing. In the second section of module, uh, in this week's module, we take a look at uniforms and our professional appearance, what I title Looking the Part. The Andy Griffith Show is one of the most famous sitcoms of all time. In season five, episode two, which originally aired September of 1964, Sheriff Andy Taylor discovers that his longtime deputy Barney Fife would not meet new state civil service requirements for law enforcement officers for both height and weight because he was too small. In light of these new requirements, Fife was going to be forced to resign his position. Fife's character, played by Don Knotts, was known for being somewhat of a banty rooster, a small, statured man that was easily excitable. To meet the new requirements, Barney would have had to gain a significant amount of weight and grow an inch or so taller. Andy, of course, comes up with a creative way to get Barney through the test, allowing him to keep his job. Height and weight standards uh, were a common part of law enforcement and corrections officers hiring processes and practices until 1977 when they were struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States. 
in the case of um, Dothard versus Rawlinson. This case originated in Alabama where at the time correctional officer applicants had to be at least five foot two and 120 pounds. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the height weight standard disproportionately affected female applicants and did not appear to represent that bona fide occupational qualification. As such, uh, they ruled that the standards violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which protects against discrimination in employment based on sex. Today, women still represent only about 12% of law enforcement officers. So why is this important in a criminal justice class? Aside from the fact that height-weight restrictions were used historically to systematically exclude women from law enforcement, we must consider why it is necessary for the Supreme Court of the United States to consider the legality of such standards. That is to say, a sufficient number of people originally believed that the requirements were a legitimate part of what they thought a legitimate officer should be and look like. They had the power to institutionalize these requirements and held on to their belief until the Supreme Court did what they are called on to do and that is test the legitimacy of these rules against the privileges of the Constitution and Bill of Rights. Society has constructed a particular image of what a law enforcement officer should look like. This ideal extends beyond height-weight standards to a more general perception of professional appearance. We all have the idea in our mind of what a professional officer should look like. Unfortunately, in some respects, this ideal is predominantly male and traditionally white, though diversity has been improving. The ideal image interrelates to society's expectations that officers be physically fit, and it is shaped in, in some ways by the fact that we look at criminal justice agents as military-like figures, as warriors or guardians. This ideal shaped by a more, uh, shaped by more than a century-long tradition has consequences for how we look at law enforcement officers, either consciously or subconsciously. In addition to the characteristics of sex and race, many people in today's society feel free to express themselves and their individuality through their personal appearance. But law enforcement policies generally value conformity over individuality, as law enforcement represents conformity in many ways. In other words, society expects you to look like a nice, clean-cut individual who is respectable uh, and, physically speaking, looks trustworthy. This adds to the perception that law enforcement should be above reproach. Uh, the preference towards conformity mixes with a paramilitary structure of law enforcement to emphasize uniformity. And, and many of the standards associated with the military have been adopted into law enforcement practices. The general lack of facial hair, the length of the hairstyle, and so forth. These policies reinforce themselves over time in the form of traditions, and traditions are hard to change. Think about the relationship between uniform appearance and communication. In the context of communication, the uniform symbolically represents the authority vested in the officer. From a practical standpoint, it allows citizens to recognize who is and who is not a police officer or in a correctional setting, it clearly 
uh, causes clear distinction between inmate in the orange jumpsuit and guard in the guard uniform. This frames some practical reasons as to why these uniforms are used. However, this poses a couple of ethical issues for us to consider. The first ethical issue concerns what current standards and traditions might be excluding otherwise well-qualified applicants for service. Two easy examples can be made here. First, tattoo policies have been hotly debated in law enforcement with many agencies loosening their restrictions in recent years as tattoos have become more socially acceptable. Some agencies allow officers to have visible tattoos, while other agencies remain more conservative and restrictive, compelling officers to cover tattoos or refusing to hire officers who would violate their policy. Take a moment to do a Google search of police department tattoo policies and see what type of recent news stories you can find. Uh, in a picture provided in the module from 2018 from the Austin Police Department in Austin, Texas, who use uh, a picture of a couple of officers with tattoos uh, to recruit on social media. Austin's a fairly liberal, progressive, eclectic community if you've ever been, and it's not surprising that this community lends itself to more progressive attitudes towards uh, tattoos. I also provide a link though to the Michigan State Police Recruitment website so that you can see their policy restrictions. You'll notice stylistically if you click on the link, this question about tattoos appears as the second on their FAQ, on their Frequently Asked Questions page. In law enforcement, we call this a clue. Uh, in this case, perhaps a clue into how frequently the question comes up. Second example that I provide includes officers who, for deeply held religious reasons, wear facial hair or headwear that would otherwise violate the department's policy or deviate from the agency's longstanding tradition and overall image. The NYPD uh, just amended their rules at the end of 2016 to allow turbans and beards to be worn by officers. If you read the link story, you'll see that it took six years to change that policy. Do law enforcement officers with tattoos, turbans, beards, do these things change your perception of what an officer should look like? Uh, the second ethical issue relates to individual officers' personal responsibility, though, to conform to the dress and appearance standards set by their employer. Aside from those accommodations related to officers' deeply held religious beliefs, when officers sign up for the job, do they give up a certain right to their individuality to express themselves in their appearance? When you represent the image of something larger than yourself, you are morally obligated to present yourself in a way that's consistent with society's expectation of someone in that position, or in that role. The reality is that most agencies have standards regulating your personal appearance. Coming to work with your hair dyed some crazy color, spiked into a mohawk with a nose ring, will not be acceptable. When you want to become part of an institution, uh, part of a particular organization, you conform yourself to those standards, and by doing so, you give up a certain element of your personal freedom of expression. There's even a uniform of the day, meaning that your choice to wear long sleeve uniform shirts versus short sleeve that's regulated. It's dictated to you by your organization. 
This further demonstrates the shift from individuality to conformity as you become part of the larger community of professionals and you are expected uh, to conform in your appearance. Failure to conform to reasonable grooming standards is generally not acceptable.